Uh, The reading today is Mark 9, verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives me, not me, but him who sent me. Now John answered him, saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one knows, no one who works a miracle in my name can soon speak evil of me afterward. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose this reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, Cut it off. It is better for you to enter this into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell and to fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die, and a fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Let's pray. Father, we lift this day up to you, this time to you, and ask your anointing on Jackie and your word this morning. Open our spirits to yours so that we can have the ears to hear what you would speak to us, so that we can go out into this deceived and corrupted world, and be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. In your precious name, Jesus, amen. Wow, God is good all the time, isn't he? He brings us his word, and it's... uh, 
it's exciting to, to open up His Word and to realize as we, as we begin to take our journey through it. God is never afraid to challenge His people. To challenge us and, and where we're at and what we're thinking and our motivation. And today it's all about our pride. Pride comes out a lot of different ways. Pride comes in the obvious ways, right? Like when we're arrogant or, or think ourselves better than someone else. But I want you to also think of pride anytime you think of yourself too much. Sometimes we can be depressed, and that's an issue of pride. Our depression is thinking about ourselves. We're focused on self, and, and that becomes a, a, a weight that drags us down. Because we're not putting our eyes where our eyes need to be. We're not putting our eyes on the prize. Or Jesus Christ isn't holding that place of treasure in our life. I am. And I start to think about all the things that are wrong in my life, or that I've done wrong, or all the, the bad choices that I've made. I, I got my own share of regrets I haul around with me all the time, and I'm sure many of you have those as well. And if I catch myself spending too much time in that, in the camp of regret, it's just another way of thinking of myself more highly than I ought, and not focusing on Christ, what He's done, how He's moving and working, what he wants to accomplish in and through us. And so as we look at this section of Scripture today in Mark, I want to, before we go there, think about something that, that God said to a nation that was full of pride. You guys remember Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob and Esau, well, you know, Jacob stole the birthright. Esau, he had, he had uh, this, this mighty, he was a mighty hunter uh, before the Lord. He, he was a man of the earth. He was a guy really not too focused on spiritual things. Well, the people that, that came up out of Esau were called the Edomites. In fact, if any of you guys ever seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, then you've seen one of the places that the Edomites built that they're most famous for. I think it was in the last one, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It was Petra, the Nabataean fortress that was unconquerable because you had to walk several miles through a seek with 200 foot high walls on both sides that were really cramped. So you could probably not walk through there more than maybe five, at the most, ten guys abreast. And people could stand 200 feet above you and drop rocks on your head for two miles. So people didn't attack Petra. Uh, the way through the Seek and into Petra was a way that Moses and the children of Israel came and asked the Edomites to allow them to go through. If you remember, in the wilderness journey, Moses said, will you let us come through? Let us come through your land. We won't stop. We won't spend any time. We won't cause any trouble. We just want to pass through. And the Edomites said no. And it led the children of Israel to battle and war. And so God wrote a book. The book of Obadiah is to the people of Edom. And he has something that I think is uh, apropos for what we're looking at this morning in, in discussing pride in Obadiah uh, verses 3 and 4. It says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle... And though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Pride takes many forms. But the Bible tells us God always resists the proud. 
God always resists the proud. And we want to just we just want to be honest and really recognize within ourselves is do I have an issue? Because we see it in the disciples, right? It's kind of obvious for them. Uh, walking around with Jesus wondering which one of them is the greatest. When the reality is they're following the greatest. Why are they worried about which one of them is? The best they could hope for is second place. Nobody ever told them second place is first loser, I guess. So they, they wanted to know who was next. Who fit in line. They had their eyes and their hearts dwelt upon their own status and their own place. And we got to be careful of that. Because it happens, it's so, it's so pride is sneaky. Sneaks in. It, it, it clothes itself in humility. Right? It, it dresses up like humility, but it doesn't come across like humility. Long time ago, somebody challenged me because whenever I did something, which I didn't often do great things, but occasionally something good would come out of something I did. And somebody would come to me and they'd say, Man, Jackie, that, that thing you did, that was so good. And I would say the, the standard answer, right? Oh, it's not me. Is, is God. But the reality of my heart was, I was thinking, yep, I'm pretty cool, huh? <laughs> and somebody challenged me one time not to do the, the, the false humility round, but just to learn to say thank you and then praise God for it. Hey, thanks. Thanks for the, the, the encouragement. Isn't God good? And then we, we don't have false or fake. Humility is just being honest, being real, being grounded to the reality and not looking lower upon yourself than we ought, which is kind of a thing we do in Christian circles, and certainly not looking higher than we ought. But just having a realistic response to what God is working, how God is moving in and through our lives. So we see that the pride was blocking the disciples' understanding. Let's look at verse 30. It says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it, for he taught his disciples, and he said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. So we see... And we, we talked a little bit about it last time. We see they don't understand what he's saying. Now it's English. For them it was Aramaic or maybe Greek. But certainly it was a language that they spoke, right? It's not that complicated. I'm going to die, be buried, and rise again. So what's so difficult to understand? Well, for one thing, it didn't fit into their plans. Right? Right? Jesus, I follow you for three years, and when we get to Jerusalem, there I do. When we get to Jerusalem, that's when it, it all happens. We get there, and you're going to set up camp, and you're going to exalt us, and we're going to be in our rightful place, and, and, and we're going to find our place sitting, ruling, and reigning over you. But that wasn't God's plan. Their pride was limiting their understanding. They were not able to understand Pride blinding them to the purposes of God. Think about this. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the scripture lays out for us. The heart is deceitful above all things. So that's our hearts. A lot of times people say, I'm just going to follow my heart. I, that's kind of a bad idea a lot of times. Because the Bible says our heart is deceitful above all things. 
That means the desires, the things that our heart longs for. They have a tendency to take us down the wrong road. But what does Scripture go on to say? It says, it's desperately wicked, our heart, and who can know it? And then it answers the question in verse 10 of Jeremiah 17. I, the Lord, search the heart. God says, I know the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. So God knows our hearts. God can see him. God recognizes that thing within us. And for the disciples, they couldn't pull the wool over God's eyes at all. And the scripture tells us exactly what was going on. Look, it says in verse 33, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Who See, pride is the issue. What's going on in their heart and lives? Hey, we want to we climb the ladder of success in following Jesus. We still have this today. We still have an idea. We, and, and, and he's going to deal with it as we work our way through the scripture. But we still have an idea of what the ladder of success in ministry looks like. How do I reach success? Whatever place I'm at, whether I'm, I'm just a member of the church or I'm a teacher in, in Sunday school or in youth or I got my own Bible study or whatever things, there's a ladder of success. And we have to guard our hearts because we'll be just like the disciples and we'll be thinking, pondering in our heart. Hey, am I greater? Am I greater than that guy? Am I better than them? So the scripture lays out for us the concept. What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? And Jesus is going to tell us. What does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God? For the disciples, pride kept them silent. Right? Pride doesn't say, oh yeah, we're being boneheads. We're arguing about who's the greatest. But pride won't, won't allow that to occur, right? Pride says, wait, let's, let's just keep silent. And I want you to recognize that in this place, Jesus does not condemn them for desiring greatness. He doesn't say that desiring greatness is bad. The problem is their understanding of greatness, what they saw greatness to be. Jesus, rather than condemning greatness, transforms it. He gives them a paradigm shift. And he lays out for them what greatness in the kingdom of heaven really is all about. What greatness is and how they can achieve greatness. Because the reality is, true greatness is not being first while others are second or third or fourth. True greatness is a willingness to be last. True greatness is not serving so others will praise you. But putting yourself in a position to serve everyone for the praise of God. So he lays out for us in in verse 35 the prerequisites for greatness. Look what he says. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first. So you think Jesus knew what they were talking about? Yeah. Yeah, he's got it, right? If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all. And servant of all. He defines greatness in the kingdom of God. Not only is he going to redefine what greatness is, but he's going to give them an object lesson that prayerfully we can all understand as we take a look at what scripture lays out for us. 
And he took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken them or taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little ones, little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who, uh, not me, but him who sent me. The first key, the first prerequisite of greatness is humility. And humility is defined in Philippians chapter 2. When we look at Philippians chapter 2, we read it this morning during communion, but let's look at it. We'll, we'll pick it up at verse 3. Philippians 2 verse 3 through 8 says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. How many things should we do in selfish ambition? Nothing, right? Don't do anything that way. Don't do anything to climb the ladder of success. Don't do anything to exalt yourself. That really flies in the face of being a human. Right? I mean, can we be honest about that? Because most of the time when we do something, we want to excel. I don't know. At least as a guy, my father spent my whole life teaching me. Second place was first loser. Do whatever you can to win. You got to put in all the time. You got to put in all. I taught the same thing to my kids. Ask them. In fact, we won second place in state championships like umpteen times. And I would take the, 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 they give you a dumb plaque for that. And they give me this plaque that says, uh, you know, you're, I forget how they, the words, they, I hated it so much. Did they say runner up? So, oh, is this a bad word? And so I, I take that plaque and I would hand it to Pastor Gerald, who was my boss then. And I would say, put this on a lumber pile and burn it. And then he'd get mad at me and reprimand me, Jackie. Second place is good. And it went against my nature to accept the fact that I wasn't the best. That it wasn't the the top of the line. Now let me tell you how fickle being the best is because we worked a long time. But the day actually came, we had an epic football game. It rained, it snowed, it sleeted, fog came in and you couldn't see the players. The water was six inches deep on the field. It was crazy. It's a, it's a full set of downs. We're ahead by one touchdown there on about the 25-yard line, and we had to stop them four times. Epic game. We stop them four times. We, we win the state championship. We order the rings. I got a white gold championship football ring. I, I, I thought, man, I have reached the zenith of my life. I got this ring, and... I never wear the dumb thing. It sits, on my, it sits on my dresser. And it's a reminder to me. I look at it and I think, man, I put a lot of effort to be in what some people would call the greatest, at least for a moment. And it really didn't mount up to a hill of beans. Nobody cares about that ring. I wear that ring. I can wear that ring all over the place. Nobody notices. I got this giant whoever wears those things right you guys have seen them before right the bigger you make them the the more important you were so you got to make a big ring jesus said if you want to be first you got to be the least of all and servant of all he doesn't say you got to be the least of most he said you got to be the least of all you got to have the attitude of humility. So he says, let nothing be done in selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That means give preference to the other. Right? 
You ever been waiting with a group of cars? And you're, oh, I know, 4th of July. Come on, you guys went to the fireworks, right? And wherever you were at the fireworks, I promise you, the same thing happened. You're in a parking lot, trying to get home, the fireworks are over, and people are merging in, right? Esteem others as greater than yourself. How hard is it to let them in? I ain't letting nobody in. I got to be careful, because if somebody knows me, they'll look and say, oh, there's Pastor Jackie, he'll let us in. I'm trying to push him out. No, hey, you wait just like me. The Bible says that we want to have a view toward others where we give them preference. And when we give others preference, it's real humility. Because it flies in the face of real humanity. So Jesus said, think of others before you think of yourself. He doesn't say to ignore your own needs. I mean, look what he says in Philippians. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests. So he doesn't say stop looking out for your interests. But what does he say? Don't look out only for your interests. But look out for the interests of others. Look for the opportunity to be a blessing to somebody else. That's true humility. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, This is the path to greatness. Humility takes us there. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. The key word in that whole sentence is the word let. See, you have control whether or not the mind of Christ can be the same mind you have. I can fight for supremacy in my life. I can allow my desires to rule. Or I can allow Christ to. And when we allow Christ to rule, the mind of Christ, to dwell in us, then we're going to have the attitude of Christ. I just want, he describes that attitude of Christ so that we can recognize when we look in our life, is this what I see reflecting from my life in the relationship that I have with other people? In the relationship that I have with others, does it look like this? Who being in the form of God, now I don't want to get deep into the Greek, but basically that word form means being God. Being God, absolutely, beyond a shadow of doubt, being God completely and totally, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, so it wasn't something to be grasped at. He didn't try to hold on to his rank. But he made himself of no reputation. He laid all that stuff aside. And taking the form of a bondservant, doulos, we talked about that. Doulos is a slave by choice, who's a slave forever. Once Jesus came as as incarnate in flesh, he's going to wear flesh forever. Because in the same way that he's the form of God, he's the form of the doulos. In the same way that he's God, he's man. That's why... Uh, traditional theology says he's fully God and fully man. He's a doulos, a slave by choice. He chooses the low, not the high. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of the death of the cross. Jesus was obedient all the way to his own death. And he says, let that mind be in you. What's that mean? 
you be obedient to yours. What death, is he talking about physical death? I don't think necessarily. I think he's talking about the death of our will. The death of our desire. The death of us putting ourselves in that place being first. What did he say? If any of you would come after me, what's he tell us to do? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Scripture tells us, let us die to ourselves. To those desires. It's okay to look out for your interests. But they got to fall in that proper priority. Where's the proper priority? Where Christ is first and everything else falls after that. Where he's in that rightful place. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be added unto you. All those other, all the things you're looking for, they come in. But what do you seek first? The kingdom of God. Where's the, where's the position of priority in our life? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To totally be surrendered in every way to Him. Now then Jesus, after kind of talking about humility, if you want to be first, you've got to be last, He takes a little child in their midst. Now doesn't this seem like a, a, He's kind of turning off track somewhere? I mean, what's the, what's the point about a child? Well, now He's going to teach us not only that humility is a prerequisite of of uh, being in that rightful place and the right attitude with God, but he's going to tell us impartiality is as well. He takes a little child and he sets him in his midst. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Now, I just want you to think about it. When you're serving, the last of all, you've got to be a servant of all. The greatest example of someone who is not going to appreciate what you do, is a child. And you say, oh no, Jackie, not my child. Well, the child that the Bible is talking about, it's the word paidon. Paidon is a, is a word, it doesn't mean baby, it doesn't mean older than teenager. What it means is one who needs discipline. So it's talking about children that need Discipline. Uh, anywhere from toddler to teenager. Big gap, right? A lot of time that we spend with our kids during that time. And to be honest, if you spend your life serving a child, the chances of them being able to reciprocate to you for what you've done is very small. Now, I'm not saying that children are never thankful and that those things don't come through them, but I'm just saying it's traditionally not the way it is. Most of the time, we pour our lives into our kids and, and they grow up and they decide, you guys didn't know nothing until they go have their own kids, right? And then they're pretty sure for the first couple of years of that, you really didn't know nothing. They've got children all figured out until a couple of years and then they may realize at some point, maybe you did know something. Maybe you had some kind of plan. But the point of, the, of it is, if you're going to take an example of being uh, uh, first or great, being the last, he's saying you want to be a servant of, of people like this child. The people that this child would represent. And so he says, if you receive him, you receive me. So even when we do the little things, God is saying, when you do the little things, I remember. But I think one of the things he's saying is to serve those who can't pay you back. 
who can't do something in return. In fact, Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, he said, When you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. You see, it's all about attitude, right? It's, it's about having an attitude. How do I check my attitude, my pride, and make sure I'm not doing this just for what I can get in return? Jesus says, do it for those who can't give you nothing. Do it for those who can't return anything uh, that you've done for them or through them. It says you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The Bible tells it that God remembers your labor of love. It just has to be a labor of love. Not a labor of pride. It's got it's to be a labor founded in the, in the idea, in the place where we want to honor God. Where we want to glorify Him. Where we want to treasure Him for what He is and what He has done for us. So as we consider that, the, the, the prerequisites of greatness, the attitude of humility, and the attitude of, of uh, accepting everyone, being impartial. And that pictured for us in the, in the attitude of a little child. Look at verse 38. It says, now while he's talking, he's talking about the child, and he says, receive one of these little ones. Then John said, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. The dirty, no good for nothing. You can hear the attitude, right? We've seen this guy, he's casting out demons. We told him, knock it off. He doesn't follow us. Look, there's only room in the, in the realm of greatness for the twelve. You're not one of the twelve. You just put away all that prayer and all that touching people. And you sit over there and let us rescue the world. You see the attitude of pride in the heart of John? John had a brother, James, you remember, right? I told you they're the first motorcycle gang in the Bible. They were given a surname. You see, when kids were relatively young, maybe seven, eight, they started getting surnames. In other words, they got a nickname. Boerjernus was the nickname. What did it mean? Sons of Thunder. Now, how do you think those kids were when they were young? To get the name Son of Thunder. Well, I'm sure they were very quiet. Mellow children. <laughs> Man, they, they were probably just like this little child Jesus is holding on to, right? And saying, you have to receive me like one of these. Teacher, we saw him and we forbid him. So how does Jesus answer him? Do not forbid him. For one who works a miracle in my name cannot soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. Now here's what's going on. John is seeing somebody else getting props. And he's not one of the twelve. He's walking around. He, he, For whatever reason, we don't even know what happened. We just know he cast out a demon. So how do you cast out a demon? By your own power or the power of God? Power of God. So that means the power of God's got to be on this guy, right? Working in him and through him. So he, Otherwise this person couldn't do it. And John comes to him and says, hey, 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 knock it off. You're stealing our press. It's got to be one of our 12 names in the paper. If somebody's casting out a demon, it's us or, or Jesus. You just follow behind. But Jesus said, 
who's not against us is for us. We ever build little fences around ourselves? Like we're the special group? Church has been pretty guilty of that over the past several years. And hopefully our goal is not to to tear down the walls in a sense where we just allow whatever to, to come in and be a part of us, but that we recognize with a wall around us, we can't do nothing. We've got to be out there. We've got to be where the people are, where the poor and the sick and the needy. We've got to be where those people are that we can touch and we can minister to and we can reach out to. We've got to be in that place. Not building a wall around ourselves, not having an attitude that says nobody else can be a part of it. Nobody else can penetrate that. And not only as a church as a whole, but within a church, sometimes we get those groups, right? Little cliques. People call them cliques. We don't want to have a clique. You might say, I don't have a clique. People accuse me of having a clique, but I don't have a clique. Well, let me tell you how to fix it. Invite people in. That fixes it. Invite that person that you say, I don't don't really want to hang out with them. Oh, let's go back to lesson number one. Humility. Think about others as more important than yourself. So we reach out. And we, we try to love on, be welcoming, be a part of, of bringing people in. Here John is trying to push people out. And what's going on is this reality. There, he's intolerant of what other people are doing. He's intolerant of what this guy has done, casting out this demon. But he also has an inability to understand how God sees what we do. He thinks, well, that guy's casting out demons. I I don't want him doing that. One of us needs to be doing that. And so Jesus explains in in this next verse, what does he say? Look what he says about the water. He says, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name. Is that a big deal? That seem like an incredible work. Does that seem like some amazing thing? So what Jesus is saying, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say he will by no means lose his reward. What's he saying? That God rewards even the little things. And what we may find out is that God rewards the little things better than the big things. Because there's so few people who want to be about the little things. Who want to be about doing those little things that nobody's going to praise you for. Who, who wants to be about those little things that nobody's going to elevate you. And you're not going to climb the ladder of success. You're not going to move on to being greater and greater in the eyes of men. But in doing those little things you may move on to be greater and greater in the eyes of God. Because even if all you do is give a cup of water. God says you won't lose your reward. Just giving a cup of water just extending your hand in whatever way that can be helpful to what's going on no task is too small for somebody with a servant's heart no task too small then in verse 42 he moves on to the perils of pride well Where is this this attitude of pride going to take me? If I don't deal with it, if I don't understand this paradigm that you've brought out to us, this redefinition of greatness, and I continue walking in pride, what happens? Well, it says in verse 42, Whoever causes one of these little ones 
who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So you guys know what a millstone is, right? It is a big rock, big round rock. You can push them because they're like a big stone wheel, small ones. But I promise you ain't picking it up. Oh, Jackie, I'm pretty strong. Oh, I'm sure you are. But if I tie it around your neck and throw it in the water, you're not holding it up, just so you know. Bloop, you're going down. And what's the point of what he's saying? Whoever causes one of these little ones, who's the little ones? Well, the example was this child the, having the attitude of impartiality. It's not just talking about young children, while I think that's an, a very important ministry that we shouldn't neglect. I'm saying he's talking about being impartial, about ministering to those who cannot repay you, about reaching out to those who, who, who aren't going to necessarily appreciate what you're doing. But he says, if you cause one of those, one of, the peop- one of those people that people don't value in the body, they're not you know, the top five givers. They're not working, they're not, they're not being a part of, or whatever, they're just a believer who's struggling in their walk. If you cause one of them to stumble, he says, better you put a millstone around your neck. Because how do we cause someone to stumble? I think more about myself. What do you mean? Well, I got freedoms. And I can do what I want to do when I want to do it. And if I'm doing my, if I'm exercising my liberty and it causes somebody else to fall, God says it'd be better to put a millstone around your neck and jump in the sea. That doesn't seem like good, right? You guys get that that's bad? We don't want to be doing that. That means I think about others first. The easiest example to give you for me is drinking. I don't drink. Is, it, is drinking a sin? No. Can drinking cause someone to stumble? Yeah. So am I going to use my liberty to cause someone else to stumble? We have this fight in church all the time. All the time. And I don't get it. I don't get it. If my freedom is going to hurt someone else, why exercise my freedom? If my having a bad attitude or being rude all the time or uh, enjoying the gift of sarcasm a little too much or whatever things, not just that, but whatever things in my life that I just say, well, that's just how I am and you're just going to have to love me for it. That's thinking of myself more highly than I should. And I need to learn to let all that stuff go. For the glory of Christ. So that I don't cause a brother to stumble. Now I can't, I can't always deal or, or help how someone's going to receive something. But as, as much as it's been in my power since I've been in Buell and before that when I was in California. If I offend somebody, I'm quick to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Now the ball's in your court. You can say, no, you're a jerk, and I'm not going to do it. (laughs) We have to be careful about bringing offense. Saturday was a wedding, Hudson's wedding. I did their wedding in here uh, um, earlier, and then we were doing a big one down at the Thousand Springs. Except the preacher forgot. 
Yeah, that's not good. You hear about the bride not showing up or the groom not showing up, but what happens when the preacher don't show up? Dad, I did not never show up. It's not like I come swooping in with my cape and save the day. They chose to celebrate anyway and have their reception. And they were already married, but they did want to do another ceremony prior to all that stuff. And they were faced with a choice, right? Jackie, you are the biggest dirt ball I ever known in my life. I'm not ever going to look at your ugly face again. Why not? I was wrong. But they chose when I said, and I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? They chose to say, yeah, that's okay. It's all good. We, if we want to have right relationships with one another, we've got to learn to do that. Not to be thinking, I, I have to be something special or something different. I don't want to cause someone to stumble by my mistakes and my attitudes and by me causing someone to stumble. And here's how he describes it. If your hand causes you to sin, now that word sin, he's, what's he referring to? We're all part of the same paracope, part of the same uh, paragraph. So as we look at the same paragraph, when he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, what's he talking about? He's talking about if your hand is causing someone to stumble. Now, let's, let's simplify it, guys. Let's not consider your hand as your hand, right? God doesn't want you to go home, take your chainsaw, and say, you know, this hand has been a problem for me, and start that thing up, and there, it's gone. Is that really going to stop you? No, your brain is a bigger problem than your hand, and you can't cut that off. So what's he mean by your hands? He's saying, if the things you do is causing somebody to stumble, better that you cut them off than you, than you go into judgment. If your feet, the things you, the places you go, cause somebody to stumble, better you cut it off than you go into judgment. Remember the judgment, millstone around the neck, bad, right? He goes a little deeper than that. If your eyes, the things you watch, what you see, causes someone to stumble, cut it out. He's saying, look, all of these areas of your life, if they are areas that can cause someone in their walk with Christ to stumble, get rid of it. Better that you enter heaven maimed than hell with two hands. Better you enter heaven maimed than hell with two feet. Better you enter heaven maimed than hell with two eyes. It's interesting because the word that he uses for hell is the word Gehenna. Gehenna is a place. It's the valley of Hinnom. Actually, there's three words in the Bible for hell. There's Gehenna, Hades, and Tartarus. Tartarus is the hell you and I think of, a lake of fire from Revelation that uh, one day all the lost, those who have rejected Christ as their Savior, will spend eternity in. That's Tartarus. Gehenna is a picture of that. It's a metaphor. It's an example. The Valley of Hinnom. Why would they use the Valley of Hinnom? The Valley of Hinnom is where Israel burned their babies. 
Back when they used to sacrifice their children to the god Molech, they would go into the valley of Hinnom, and they would burn their babies there. It became synonymous with a place of judgment because of what they did to their children. And later on, it would become a dump where the fires were always burning. So you see this, this quotation from Isaiah, where the worm never dies and the fires never quenched. Well, the worm is man. The Bible very clearly teaches in hell, the man does not die. He's not terminated. He doesn't cease to exist. Where the worm never dies and the fires never quenched. It's not a picture. I don't want you to have a picture of, of like burning forever. I want you to have a picture of being separated from God forever. The, the loss of every good and perfect thing that you find in the presence of God. Hell is the opposite of all that. And so the language used to describe it, fire. Fire speaks of judgment. The worm speaks of destruction. And so you have this place. And he's saying, look, there's, there's a judgment. He's talking about it. He's opening it up so that we can understand. What is our attitude toward others? Don't cause them to stumble. What is our attitude toward ourselves? Make sure that we are judging ourselves. If we judge ourselves, we would not need to be judged. Judgment begins in the house of God. That means in you and I. Where's the temple of God today? Is it this building? No, you are the temple of God, right? We corporately are the temple of God. You individually are the temple of God. So what's he saying? You judge yourself. Look. Judge yourself. What you do, where you go, what you see. Because we will all experience judgment. Every one of us. Every one of us will experience judgment. There's two judgments the Bible talks about. The great white throne. And the Bema seat. The great white throne is the judgment for the lost who have rejected Christ. The Bema seat is the judgment for the saved standing before Christ. Bema means mercy. We stand before the mercy seat. And he causes the things we did in our life to pass through the fire. That's which, which we did for him. Returns to us as gold, silver and precious gems. But the great white throne, the judgment is... You get what you want. The only way you stand in the place of the great white throne judgment is rejecting Christ. You have to step over the body, the outreach arms of Jesus to get there. You have to say, I don't want you to rule over me. And God just gives you what you've asked for. I don't want you. That's what hell is. We will experience judgment. There is a judgment to come. Then in the last two verses, just look at it as we end. He wraps it all up for us. And hopefully I can help you understand what's going on. He says, everyone will be seasoned with fire. What did I tell you fire was? In the Bible, it's a picture of judgment. All the time. Fire is a picture of judgment. So what's he saying? Everyone will be seasoned. Everyone is going to experience judgment. If we would judge ourselves, then we would not need to be judged. But there will be a judgment for all men everywhere. And every sacrifice was to be seasoned with salt. So he, he brings the picture of fire and salt being similar. Now what's the goal? Fire is a picture of judgment, but all sacrifices were sprinkled with salt. Before the sacrifice was given, they would, they would put a little salt on the sacrifice. For what purpose? Because salt represents two things that should be in the life of every believer. Uh, 
having an, an attitude of preserving from corruption and making people thirsty. Those two things ought to be in the life of every believer. Recognizing God's judgment in our life is the key to overcoming pride. God's going to judge me. And I don't want to wait another day to be okay with somebody else. Just make it okay. Lay down your pride. And allow God to use you the way that he wants to use you. Because salt is good. Salt is good. It preserves the world from corruption. What is the salt of the church supposed to do in the world? Preserve the world from corruption. What's happening in our world right now? Oh my gosh, it's pretty corrupted. So if the Bible says salt is a preservative from corruption, and that we're to be salt and light, it means what about the job we're doing? Could we do better? I mean, honestly, can we, can we do better? Have, have I been the best witness I could be? Have I walked in humility or am I walking in pride? Am I considering others greater than myself? I need to look at my life and say, am I being salt? Because if I'm salt, doesn't mean I won't say nothing, but I'm, I'm going to be a preservative. First, I'm being a preservative, preserving corruption, so, so that meat doesn't rot. But secondly, I'm going to make you thirsty. So that you go where to get a drink? Come unto me, all you who thirst, Jesus said, and I will give you living water. And the water that Jesus gives, we drink that water, we will never thirst again. Believers are to be a preservative against corruption and are to be a source of thirst. If the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. What's he saying? Be who God's asking you to be. And you won't find yourselves arguing about who's the greatest. You won't find yourself struggling about what God wants in us and through us. Because every time there's conflict within the body of Christ. Conflict in the body of Christ happens all the time. There's only one cause. Pride. Every argument I've ever tried to settle in my life between two believers in church has always come down to pride. Pride says I won't forgive. Pride that says uh, I, I refuse to consider their feelings or what's going on in their life. It all comes down to pride every time. You want to have peace together? We have to have the attitude of humility. We have to have the attitude of Christ, right? Let this mind be in you like Christ. Be like him. Think about others first. On his way to the cross, he wasn't thinking about himself. On his way to the cross, he was thinking about you. He was thinking about me. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. But he saw the joy of you with him for eternity. And that's what he asked us to do. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word, God, and to see the things that your word is calling us to. And I pray, Lord, that we might 
recognize that this is really what we need in the church today. If we're going to be effective in our world, then the church has got to stop fighting amongst itself and shining its own armor. But rather the church needs to step forward, loving one another within the body of Christ, learning to dwell together. How beautiful it is when brethren dwell together. How in unity. Unified in what? In Jesus Christ. How can we be unified in Christ? We're unified in Christ because you have made each of us who we are. And we didn't do it ourselves. There's no pride. There's no arrogance. There only is the beauty of Christ touching a life. So we can have unity, so we can be bound together, so that we can start to kick the darkness until it bleeds the light, so that we can recognize you have a call in our life to accomplish something in your name until the day you come. So we lift up our heads, for our redemption draws nigh, but we don't forget who you asked us to be, salt and light. Until that time, no quit. No surrender. No, I give up. Salt and light. Thinking more of others than we think of ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would purge us of the attitude of pride we may have in our life so that you could be glorified and magnified in the lives that we live before you and that you would make a difference in our world, in our community. This week, Lord, Friday, we pray that you pour out your spirit in a mighty way, that the people we invite will come and see and surrender. And that you would be glorified as we give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.